Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, do you remember Premier League 98-99? Men in black on their back, strikers on strike, a three-way title race, and in the most controversial rival ever in the Northeast, until this week, Bullet going to Newcastle. We'll run up all the delights and drama of that memorable campaign, plus bring you everything to know about the Bundesliga as we race towards Tuesday's Der Klassiker and, oh my, it's Lang v Cox, round two in the quiz. All that in the Toby Football Show in association with Paddy Power. There. Strike a concern note at the start of this Totally Football Show. Listener, thanks so much for joining us as a new week begins in the company here on Totally Football Show of Daniel Story. Hi, James. Matt Davis Adams. Hello, James. And Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hi to you all. After what would have been Cup Final Weekend. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Because I think most of us assume we're still back in February because. The football hasn't moved on in this country, but time races forwards. And yeah, it, w- it would have been that day. Yeah, and we would have been, I don't know, complaining about the scheduling, the fact that there weren't nine hours of build-up before kick-off of the, of the FA Cup final, and then usually complaining about a pretty drab game. So disappointing not to be able to do that, because it certainly hasn't been the case in the Bundesliga this weekend. Wow, very nicely done, Matt. Yeah, much like uh, 2006, we're all watching football played in lovely stadiums instead over in Germany this summer. Uh, Lots of drama this weekend. Did you catch much, Daniel? Yeah, I watched uh, Bayern dismantle Frankfurt or maybe Frankfurt dismantled themselves on Saturday evening and then I saw highlights of uh, Leipzig's thrashing of Mainz 05, literally. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And what a record Leipzig have against Mainz this season across the two fixtures. Yeah, 13-0 on aggregate, I think. Timo Werner getting a hat-trick in both of those games. First player since Ulf Kirsten, of course, in 98-99 to score. Hat-tricks against the same Bundesliga opponent in the same season. Among the other delights this weekend, Friday night you had uh, the Berlin derby, Hertha putting the Hertha on neighbours Union. Uh, Bruno Labbadia, who is Hertha's fifth manager since June, making the best start ever in that club's history as a manager. They had that 3-0 at Hoffenheim last weekend, 4-0 Friday in the Berlin derby, and they could now be on for a late European bid. David Wagner not having so much fun at Schalke. Their rotten restart continuing. They got beaten 3-0 at home by Augsburg on Sunday. Gladbach, which uh, was a fixture of theirs against Bayer Leverkusen, Rafa was drooling about on Thursday, uh, the game lived up to it, I think. Actually, uh, Leverkusen looking excellent. 3-1 winners as they swept past a uh, Mudge and Gladbach side who were kind of roared on, kind of figuratively at least, by a collection of 13,000 cardboard representations of supporters. Did you see those, Michael? Uh, yes, I did. I thought they were quite nice, actually. Kind of uh, mm. just improved the backdrop without it being too distracting or too uh, too virtual, if that makes sense. Nice touch of them to put uh, cardboard cutouts of the 1970 title-winning team amongst them as well. 
and even some away supporters, I think, which Leverkusen fans are paid for. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's nice. What also struck me is, I mean, obviously the stadium's open and it will be raining, so they can't put 13,000 cardboard figures out and then leave them there. Somebody has to go and collect them all at the end of the day and, and then presumably reinstate them next time. But uh, but it was nice. I found myself getting used to the empty grounds, not least because I'm pretty sure the TV directors have changed the camera angles so that you're much more, you're tighter in on the pitch and that the... the there's steeper shots as well, so you don't see the empty stands nearly so much. Yeah, just um, mm. just just on that, it feels to me as well like maybe the TV directors have also asked the commentators to talk a bit more. You know, what one of the things that you're taught in in football commentary school is to is to let the pitches do the talking wherever possible. But but it feels to me certainly on the British coverage that there's a kind of concerted effort to to cover up for the lack of of background sound by by. Filling it with words, essentially, which kind of works. It's although it goes against, as I say, what you what you traditionally told works best. I think it's fair to say as well that the the lack of real fans is having an impact on the results. I mean, there's been 17 games so far. Of them, 10 have been away wins, which is 59 percent. The usual rate is about 25, 26 percent. Obviously, this is a small sample size, but uh, yeah, it does look as if home advantage is we're not even just being cancelled out for now because the away sides are doing so well. But uh, yeah, as time goes on, maybe it will be a bit more 50-50. Yeah, only three home victories in the 18 matches so far, which does sound less than usual. Well, one of those was, of course, the champions Bayern Munich, who took on Eintracht Frankfurt, who they always beat at home, and want them 5-2. Although, nervous moments when at 3-0 up, they suddenly conceded twice from corners in the space of four minutes. And it looked like Frankfurt might be roaring back into it. But no, 5-2 it finishes, meaning that Bayern keep their four-point lead ahead of Tuesday's whopping clash with Borussia Dortmund, who got their ninth win in 10 earlier that afternoon by winning at Wolfsburg. Obviously now it's all about Der Klassica, which is happening kind of tea time on Tuesday. So to prep us for that must-watch encounter, uh, we asked Raphael Honigstein to give us his thoughts. Well, I think we've all been looking forward to this game since the restart, really. And even before that, I think in the winter break, people thought, Axel Witzel was talking about it, that Bayern going to Dortmund could be the decider. It's an enormous game. Uh, it's a fantastic occasion, especially with um, not that much football being on elsewhere. So the Bundesliga and uh, those two teams will be, will be relishing that chance. But it is more of a chance, I think, for Bayern and for Dortmund. Dortmund have to have to at least get a draw, whereas Bayern are in a much more comfortable position. OK, they scored five goals on Saturday, but they also conceded two against a really struggling Eintracht Frankfurt side. How much heart should Borussia Dortmund take from that? I think they'll take a little bit heart from that, but Dortmund's game is not going to be based on set pieces. Dortmund are best when they can play in transition, as we saw, as we even saw against Bayern last year when they beat them 4-2 in Dortmund, played very, very well. So I think the idea that, you know, Bayern will somehow be very vulnerable from set pieces, from corners, and then that's an area that they're going to look at, I think, is not really realistic. Um, so much more likely is that Dortmund will, will find a way to lure Bayern forward and try to isolate them and then create these overloads in White's position. Um, I think they'll take more encouragement from the fact that Jaden Sancho seems to be fit, um, hopefully fit enough to play, which... I think is really going to make a difference, especially if Bayern fail to have their best back four on the pitch because Boateng picked up a bit of a knock 
in the game against Frankfurt and might not make it. Mm. So that's where the encouragement will come from, the idea that they can expose the spine back for. OK, uh, Sancho sparked a, a lightning counter-attack for the second of the Dortmund goals at Wolfsburg on Saturday. It's quite tempting. I know there's huge names all over the field, but it's quite tempting to really focus in on his duel with the revelation of this Bundesliga season, Alfonso Davis for Bayern. It's going to be amazing. Um, the pace of both, both players is, is fantastic, the technique as well. Sancho won't be able to do it by himself because 1v1, you always... Um, at an advantage as a, as a defender. Um, he needs players moving off him. He needs that little bit of ingenuity that Brandt brings, for example, when he moves out to the right. Torgan Hazard might be another factor as well if he maybe starts on the left. Uh, Giorena might be given a chance. So Dortmund have, in that final third, a lot of creativity and a lot of solutions, and they will try to get in these spaces behind Kimmich in the back four. Um, and Kimmich and Thiago, if Thiago does recover will have a lot of work to do to make sure that Dortmund don't play their way through them, especially when, when the turnover breaks quickly. All right. And that's going to be the decisive uh, factor in the game. Raphael Honigstein. Daniel, what do you think about Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, Raph is absolutely right. It is a bigger game for Dortmund and they probably also have more to fear. Uh, they beat Bayern at home last season, but their recent record against them is pitiful. They've lost five of the last six and conceded 24 goals over that period, which is astonishing for a team that considers themselves as the the second team in the Bundesliga. And, you know, it goes without saying that if they lose on Tuesday, another season ticks by without a league title, almost certainly. And you do wonder whether, you know, at the moment it's it's Jadon Sancho in the, the kind of transfer rumour headlines. If he goes, Hakimi will probably go back to Real Madrid. Suddenly Haaland and Brandt, their names get flouted too, because it's very hard to turn players into champions if you aren't ever going to be champions. And the reality in the Bundesliga is that Bayern are so dominant that if you're a Dortmund player, you think, well, do I have to move to, to win trophies? It's a kind of extension, maybe even a uh, a distillation of, of the Tottenham problem that we talk about in the Premier League, which is the journey is really exciting and you know pure. But if it doesn't end in trophies, then you can see why some players might want to leave. Well, it hasn't ended in a league title since 2012. There does seem to be some suggestion that this Dortmund is different and different even to how it was at the start of the season. They're not conceding goals anymore. I think one in their last six games. Part of that has been their opponents, but they do possess a phenomenal attacking lineup. I don't know. Can they do it on Tuesday? If they could, one point would be the gap with Bayern still to visit Bayer Leverkusen, who are also very much in form. Yeah, the, the other thing we, we have to mention is very obviously at the moment is they're going to have to do it without their fans who, you know, when they won last season against Bayern, they twice came from behind and I think they've, they've fallen behind five times at home this season in all competitions and haven't lost a single one of those games. So the fans clearly play a part. I know Haaland mentioned after the defeat to PSG that not playing in front of fans in Paris kind of put them off. So they need to sort that out pretty quickly. It's probably not going to be nil-nil. Just looking at the, the recent head-to-heads between the two teams some crazy games and, and loads of goals nine of the last 10 meetings have had at least three goals in them and, and Dortmund have had some heavy defeats away um, so yeah going to be interesting to see if um, if it's another bumper goal field match we should hope so let's hope so yeah wouldn't mind Dortmund winning to make it a really interesting title finale excellent that's coming up Tuesday evening well Tuesday tea time on BT Sport 
Here's a quick tweet from Ricardo Mantio, who says, In your last show, you mentioned the Canizares perfume bottle injury uh, that allowed Casillas to deputise in the World Cup. Are there any more examples, says Ricardo, of freak injuries that made players miss key matches or championships? Hmm, players getting freak injuries. Only about a billion, Ricardo. Which is your favourite, Michael, freak injury for a player? Well, the classic one is Dave Besant dropping a salad cream bottle onto yeah. his foot and I think trying to trap it. Um, but I, I must say, um, I think this is the most discussed topic on this podcast ever. Like, if right. I was to give someone advice for how to come prepared to a football podcast, I'd say, choose your favourite freak injury. And mine is Dave Besson. My favourite, by some distance, is former Liverpool and Southampton goalkeeper Michael Stensgaard. It won't be his favourite, obviously, but uh, he suffered a career-ending shoulder injury while putting down an ironing board at home. Right. I mean, there's so many. Leroy Leiter, I think, doing his hamstring while lying in bed. Uh, Sebastian Frey diving into a swimming pool with no water in it. A Sprillier kicking in the bus headlights, all that. Matt, what's your favourite? There's plenty to choose from. Uh, Richard Wright in the warm-up of Everton's FA Cup game with Chelsea in 2006, falling back onto a sign in the goal mouth which said, keep out of the goal mouth, uh, getting an ankle injury and, and having to miss the game. Um, but I think the best one is Paolo Diogo uh, playing for Servette. Swiss midfielder sets up a goal in the 87th minute of a 4-1 win, so not exactly a huge goal, jumps the barricade to celebrate with his supporters, gets his new wedding ring caught in said barricade, comes back down with half of his finger missing, surgeon's unable to reattach it. Yeah, probably not worth it for an assist in a 4-1 win. Well, I think we'll move on then, Matt. Thanks for that. All sorts of drama in store today as we journey back in time to Premier League 1998-99. But next up, and recorded a little bit earlier today, it's the Intertotally. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Once again, it's semi-final second leg time. The prize, of course, for the winner today, a one-on-one mano-a-mano final showdown with Daniel Storey. Who will it be who goes through to face the unassuming end-level boss from Leicester? Well, let's meet the contestants. He finally rose to the occasion in the first leg, but can he keep it up and ensure that this semi ends with a happy finish? All tactics, all the time. He is Michael Cox. Hi, Michael. Hi, James. Uh, Nice to have you back. Uh, Last time, of course, you made Jack respect the Cox, as Tom Cruise says in Ben's favourite movie. Can you finish him off today, then? Uh, I hope so. I must say... I've been feeling the pressure on these little uh, quizzes and, and especially when you have a first leg lead, you know that there's only, you know, you're expected to win. There's only one way it can go. You know, if it changes, then I'll be left with egg on my face. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. OK. Many people have tried beating Cox over this lockdown. Let's meet again the man trying to pull it off today. And his opponent... He badly fluffed his lines in the last outing, but there's no way he's going down without a fight and a dirty one at that. He is Jack, 90,001. Jack, welcome back. Thank you, James. Not at all. You came in 
as the competition's highest scorer, of course, but after your general knowledge wipeout last time when you didn't score, Jack, you're trailing Michael by, by four points. How are you feeling? I feel fine. I see this as a, a free hit, chance to you know entertain my legion of fans as I bow out nobly. Okay, nobly, which has pretty much been your, your default mode throughout the <laughs> tournament. Of course, you're going to be answering <laughs> questions on Michael's specialist subject, uh, today, which is Michael? Uh, it's Arsene Wenger's era at Arsenal. Arsenal, the Arsene Wenger years. All right, then, if you're ready, let's get quizzing. Jack, you're up first. Question one. Wenger's Arsenal set the record for most consecutive unbeaten English league games between 2003-2004. Whose record did they break? Ooh... Which club previously held the record for most consecutive unbeaten English league games? <sighs> I think it's very old and it's probably one of those teams that was good very long ago. Something like Preston. Is that what you're saying? I'm going to go for Preston, sure. Preston is wrong. It's Nottingham Forest mm. who had managed 42. Arsenal, of course, got to 49. Question two then. Who did Arsenal beat in the final to win Wenger's first FA Cup? Ooh, I think it was FA Cup. Is it Newcastle? It is. Hey. Question three. Arsenal lost two European finals under Wenger. To which two teams? Uh, one was Barcelona and the other was Liverpool. No, it was Galatasaray in the 2000 UEFA Cup. Ah, that is so silly. Yep, carry on. <laughs> Question four. Thierry Henry scored the most goals under Wenger at Arsenal with 228. But who scored the second most? I'm going to guess at Robert Perez. It's Robin Van Persie with 132. And question five. Who did Arsenal play and beat in Wenger's last match in charge of Arsenal? Oh, don't know. So let's guess again. Everton? Huddersfield. Mm. So at the end of that round, Jack, you scored one point, reducing your deficit to Michael Cox to just three. Back in it, I think. Very much so. The comeback is on. Let's see what Michael can do with Arsenal, the Arsene Wenger years. Michael, question one. Who did Arsenal play and beat in Wenger's first official match in charge? Ooh, slightly difficult one because I think there was a period where he was at the stadium but he wasn't in charge. But I think his first official game was away at Blackburn. That's correct. Do you know the score? 2-0, uh, I think. <laughs> Very impressive. Also correct. Question two. How many games did Arsenal draw in the invincible season? Ooh, so 38 games. I think they won 26 and drew 12. Correct. Question three. Arsene Wenger signed three players from his former club, Monaco, for Arsenal in 1997. One was Emmanuel Petit. Can you name one of the others? Gilles Grimondi. Is correct. The third man being Christopher Ray. Question four. Who played the most number of games under Wenger at Arsenal? That's a good question. So... I'm thinking either Bergkamp... Vieira. Vieira must have done 
nine seasons. Burkamp did ten. But I think Vieira probably played more games. I'll go Vieira. Correct. And this for a perfect score, question five. Three players won the PFA Player of the Year award under Wenger. Which three were they? The PFA Player of the Year. Uh, so Omri must have been one. Van Persie presumably was the other. And the last one... Pires won something, but I think he won the Football Writers Player of the Year. Oh, the other one must be Dennis Burkamp. Burkamp. That's correct, Michael. Giving you a perfect score on your specialist round. And meaning that you are now eight points ahead of Jack Lang with only five left to play for in the general knowledge. That's going to be tough to come back from, Jack. Yeah, I called the season off, I think, morally at this stage (laughs) with all the events going on. (laughs) All right. Once again, with the high moral ground, Jack Lang. All right. You'll both be back for the general knowledge round later? Yeah. I mean, I will be. (laughs) If health conditions don't deteriorate further, James, I'll, I'll try. All right. Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much for that. And we'll catch up with you at the end of today's show. Well, perfect score in the specialist round. Four out of five in Jack Lang's specialist round. He's going to be a pretty arduous opponent for somebody in the final. Hey, Daniel? As intimidating as I expected. Right. Could be more to come as Michael attempts to become the first contestant to manage a perfect 10 out of 10 and an intertotally leg. That'll be later on because next up, it's this week's retro journey into Premier League's past. The Bundesliga is back. And as Dortmund hoped to close the gap on title rivals Bayern, Paddy Power paid a visit to star striker Erling Haaland's family home to see where the boy wonder came from. It's a lie! It's a lie! <laughs> Hello, come in. <laughs> we all wondered what they'd been feeding him. And this weekend, Paddy Power will be getting on board with an invention of our own, the Money Back Special. See online for our latest Bundesliga Money Back Specials. Paddy Power. Terms and conditions apply. 18plusbgovernaware.org. Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. 98-99. A season famous for that bewildering last-minute blaze in Barcelona. But also in the Premier League for one of the greatest ever struggles for a title. Up there with Aguero, it's up for grabs now, and Stefan Kuntz's autobiography. Three teams, Chelsea, Arsenal and Man United, taking it right down to the wire in May. And along the way, a season that gave us delights such as Hullet at Newcastle, George Graham at White Hart Lane, Big Ron in the Big Ron dugout, and Paolo Di Canio in big trouble. This was the 100th top flight campaign in English football history. Michael, do people forget how good it was? Yeah, I think because Manchester United won the treble and, and people think about their Champions League victories, obviously the one in the final, there was a famous victory against Juve, even the group stages against Barca. I think people look back, they think of this season as Manchester United and they think of uh, them winning the Champions League more than anything else. But, I mean, their three victories were all at various stages, quite tight margins. Um, and certainly in both the Premier League and the FA Cup, they went toe-to-toe with Arsenal and, you know, even two games from the end of the season, it looked like Arsenal were in the driving seat. Um, midway through that semi-final at Villa Park, it looked like Arsenal were in the driving seat. So, yeah, it was um, two really good sides. And, uh, yeah, I think it's probably one of the more enjoyable Premier League seasons looking back. 
Yeah, the highest quality title race that we've seen so far whilst we've been chronicling these these um, Premier League seasons, definitely. You mentioned that there were three teams in it, obviously Chelsea as well, but, but United and Arsenal set such high standards that it, it really did feel like the quality of the league was beginning to improve significantly from where it was what, two, three seasons ago, maybe. And also, but kind of intertwined with that, the the light and shade of surprising teams being up there. You know, Aston Villa starting really quickly. Middles were being in the top four for a while. Derby were second at one point. So although those teams eventually kind of went on to steamroller the second half of the season, the first half of the season had that uncertainty that makes a Premier League season or makes a great Premier League season. I think it wasn't just two or even three teams going blow for blow. There was there was a really nice light and shade to it. Well, speaking of uncertainty... Plenty of managerial movement, uh, even before Christmas. Uh, five managers leaving their post. Roy Hodgson at Rovers, who was gone in November after just two wins from the opening 13 games. Former Man United assistant Brian Kidd taking over. Meanwhile, Roy Evans going at Liverpool after that failed joint manager stint with Gerard Houllier. Christian Gross was out after three games of this season at Spurs, replaced by former gunner George Graham. And before any of them, Kenny Dalglish. Out at Newcastle, just two games into the season, replaced by Ruud Hullet at his sexy football. Newcastle, as entertaining as ever this season, eh? Yeah, I mean, they did this weird thing where they basically had the best centre-forward in the country over the course of his career, who was kind of, at that point, slightly changing his game to become a bit more of a kind of all-round centre-forward or even a target man, which is what he became. And they signed Duncan Ferguson for £8 million, the most obvious target man big man centre forward in English football at the time so and then still had the old players left like the Stuart Pierces and the very it's very strange going through that Newcastle squad and realising that some of those players played with each other um, because they had the youngsters coming through and then as I say these old heads it was a I mean it was a dismal Premier League season and Hullet was not well liked they finished down in 13th place they do reach the FA Cup final for the second season in a row of course failing to win it, but civil war raging. There's an interesting piece actually in The Athletic or on The Athletic right now with a lot of kind of first-person accounts from squad members of that time talking about the split. Uh, Shearer, who apparently Hullet used to say to his face, you are the most overrated player I've ever seen, basically saying that had they won that FA Cup final, Hullet would have won the war and Shearer would have had to have left the club. Equally mentions of Stuart Pearce, uh, they used to do England against rest of the world five-a-side matches in training. Piercey would be on one side and Hullet uh, would be on the other. A Warren Barton story this. So Piercey used to say, drop the ball short whenever it goes near the gaffer. Uh, and they duly would. And of course, Stuart Pierce would come in with a, a trademark clatter from about 60 yards out. And, and that was very much the mood of things there. It's fair to say that Hullet was not a man who was bowed to public opinion or sometimes since. I mean, I know we're going in slightly into the next season, but by the following August, the start of 1990-2000, he dropped Shearer for a, a derby against Sunderland for Paul Robinson because he'd clearly fallen out with Shearer, which, I mean, if nothing else is ballsy. Um, they, they then lost the game and he got sacked. So um, maybe that says more about Ruud Hullet than, than anyone else. Mm. Not the only headstrong Dutchman in this uh, Premier League season, of course, well, Touch more on another figure a little bit later on, but also pretty entertaining that year were John Gregory's Aston Villa. They'd sold Dwight York at the start of the season, of whom Gregory memorably said, if I had a gun, I would have shot him. But they had signed Paul Merson and later Dion Dublin and began the season with a 12-match 
unbeaten run, and they spent most of the first half of the campaign as the leaders. Yeah, you can you can take your pick on on John Gregory quotes from this season, whether it's that one or, or what he said at uh, Paul Merson's um, unveiling. Uh, all the all the stuff about Stan Collymore. How could you be depressed when you're on twenty grand a week? Um, David Unsworth misses. Where's the trousers in in that house? And and there's a bit in um, Gareth Southgate's autobiography that that he wrote a number of years ago about this season and how Gregory used to insist on putting the armband on Gareth Southgate in front of the players before they went out uh, onto the pitch because it was a visual representation of him passing the responsibility for the team from himself and on to Southgate and Southgate not really having this. And it's it's very... The more you look at Gregory, the more he, he, he kind of feels like the inspiration for David Brent because some extraordinary sort of management practices and, and the way that he dealt with the press in particular maybe suggests why his... Um, his career went like Villa's season, really. It started brightly and then it, and then it petered out into um, sort of insignificance. Yeah, this Villa season also featured, I think, one of the most memorable Premier League games uh, during this period, which was a 3-2 win they got over Arsenal um, just before Christmas. They were 2-0 down to two Dennis Bergkamp goals and then Gregory completely changed things, put on an extra striker in Stan Collymore and they won 3-2 with goals from Joe Chim and Dublin, the two other forwards. Collymore on the near post, coming in behind him is Dublin! It was probably most memorable for the fact it was held up by about half an hour because a parachutist descending uh, into the stadium at half-time managed to clip the edge of one of the stands and then fell very dramatically. Uh, quite a serious incident. He ended up losing a leg. Um, the happy ending to the story is that the nurse who cared for him in hospital, uh, he later married. Well, that's lovely, Michael. This Villa season is also notable because I think I'm right in saying it was the last time that any club filled is an all-English 11. Um, and it's actually quite often they would bring on two or three subs and those would also be English, um, which, yeah, you struggle to imagine happening now. Well, Villa were top at Christmas before winning only one of their next 12 matches. They ended up in sixth place, which is the biggest drop by a team that had been leading uh, on December 25th in Premier League history. They ended up actually leapfrogged by West Ham. West Ham, who posted their second best finish ever in the top division, up in a remarkable fifth place with, has to be said, a pretty remarkable squad. Harry Redknapp had been winding his car window down repeatedly that summer and into the season as well as the club snapped up Shaka Hislop, Razor Ruddock, Mark Keller, Ian Wright, and then in mid season, Paolo Di Canio. More on him in a second. But Ian Wright, was that a whopping surprise at the time? I think it. Probably was in so much as probably the reason, if there is one reason why United won the title, is that they had three goal scorers in Cole York and Solskjaer to come off the bench. Whereas uh, Arsenal had Carney, who didn't, you know, he scored, I think he scored two league goals that season. He didn't really get much time. So maybe in hindsight, Wenger would think that Wright would have been a good player to hang around. But knowing Wright's personality, he just wanted to play every game. And as soon as it became clear that an Elker and Bergkamp were the first choice front two, I think he would probably have been pushing for playing every week in the Premier League, which is pretty much what he did at West Ham. Well, he finished up top scorer for the Hammers in what was his last ever Premier League season, although there was that regrettable business when he smashed up the referee's dressing room after receiving a red card, he felt unjustly. It was a bad season for match officials, this, not least because of the actions of, 
in Wright's teammate subsequently at West Ham, Sheffield Wednesday's Paolo Di Canio. If we think of the Cantonar Kung Fu kick as being one of those where were you when that happened kind of stops you dead in your track type moments, was Di Canio pushing over the ref of a similar magnitude? Yeah, it wasn't such a big event because, you know, Di Canio was a, a talented player for a kind of mid-table bottom half side rather than, you know, probably the most revered player in the league as Cantona was at that time. But I think in terms of the impacts and in terms of the reaction, yeah, it probably was similar. I mean, we hadn't really seen anything like that before in English football in terms of a referee really being assaulted, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of led to his departure from Sheffield Wednesday. I think the thing people forget about that is that was in the first half. Wednesday were down to 10 men for the majority of the game and still won 1-0 at home to Arsenal with a goal by a left-back called Lee Briscoe, who I must admit I really had to Google because I have no recollection of him whatsoever. But it was an incredible chip in the last minute over David Seaman's the far corner. And when you look at the league table at the end of the campaign obviously Arsenal were one win short of winning the league so you have to look at that and say losing away to 10-man Sheffield Wednesday was one of the results that really cost them the title. Mm, incredible chip it's a fair description of Di Canio as well I think probably assault on the referee is a bit strong when you look at it well it's quote Di Canio from his autobiography I could push my eight-year-old daughter that hard and she wouldn't fall over but Alcock's tumble is is perhaps the most spectacular element, apart from the bit afterwards when De is being hustled off the field and Nigel Winterbourne comes up all, do you want some? Until De makes a move towards him and, and, and Nigel kind of flinches away in dramatic fashion. As somebody on Twitter pointed out, that, that must have been um, pretty awkward when Winterbourne later moves to West Ham um, to join De there. Just on the, on the Cantona thing, I think one of the big differences, as trivial as, as it sounds, as you sort of allude to there, James, is the visual element of it. It's shocking to see Cantona dive into the crowd to cause some serious damage to somebody potentially, whereas the Alcott one just looks like comedy because of the way that he stumbles and falls over in a way that you shouldn't when you push that much. It becomes something that is humorous and then you get, what, a couple of days later, Neil Ruddock and, and Ian Wright reenacting it in a goal celebration and that was not the kind of reaction you got to the Cantona thing. It was more, it was more um, humour than outrage that was the response to it at the time, I seem to remember. i got to say, I, I, I hate the Di Canio incident and the way it was kind of joked about afterwards and the way they did the celebrations and that. In general, I really don't like footballers being held up as role models and having to set an example and all that. But like the, the rate of assaults on like grassroots officials is so bad. Like it's really, really bad. And there was another incident maybe this season, roughly around this time, where Emmanuel Petit literally just put his hands on the referee, didn't push him, almost was just almost pleading with him, I think, and was shown a straight red card. And I thought that was quite interesting because a lot of referees came out and said they really appreciated that because it set an example that you just don't touch the referee. I thought Di Canio shoving the ref and then joking about it and making all these jokes about his daughter. I mean, he's a isn't he, Di Canio? I hate him. <laughs> Well, after an 11-game suspension, he was to join West Ham, who, as we mentioned, finished fifth and returned to European competition after a 19-year absence. We'd better talk about that title race. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Hey, girls. Hey, boys. Superstar DJs. Here we go. So Villa had been top 
at Christmas. Three real contenders emerged, though, as the new year got underway. United, who had squandered an 11-point lead the previous season, but spent big over the summer on, amongst others, Dwight York and Yap Stam, and have David Beckham in arguably his best ever season for them. There was reigning champions Arsenal, whose defence was playing tight, but whose players no longer were, crucially, and who'd added Nwanku Kanu as the season progressed. And there was Chelsea, who are often forgotten, but who were actually, uh, still in December, the bookies' favourites to take the title. Craig Nugent says a bit of love for Chelsea would be appreciated. We only missed out by four points, and if it weren't for those injuries to Poyet and Flo, we really could have won it. Is that right, Matt? Could they? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, they, they lost on the opening day at Coventry and then they didn't lose another league game until the end of January, which is really impressive. Remember, they, they also won the Super Cup in this season, beating Real Madrid in the final. This is um, Viali's first full season uh, as manager. You mentioned that the players missing through injury in, in Flo and Poyet, but also Pierluigi Casiraghi had his career-ending injury during this season, who... who could have been another source of goals for them, albeit he hadn't got off to a, a particularly impressive start. But yeah, really significant season uh, for Chelsea. This they they had a a very international flavour to the squad, as would become the norm. Uh, they had World Cup winning centre backs in Desai and Leboeuf, and and John Terry also made his debut uh, in this season too. So it is one that was significant. And Chelsea definitely were in the title race up until the point in April where they had three successive draws. Um, the most memorable of which was a two-two at home to Leicester when Steve. Guppy got an 88th minute equaliser and um, Guppy is still a swear word around Stamford Bridge as a result of that. Guppy. It's bending, it's in! Steve Guppy! Arsenal, with results like that 5-1 demolition of Wimbledon, a 6-1 against Middlesbrough as well. United countering with results like that 8-1 victory at Nottingham Forest that nobody likes to talk about, but features <laughs> Ole Gunnar Solskjaer scoring four goals in 14 minutes having come on as a substitute. It was 1-1 at one point, that game. I was there. Um, rest of it didn't go that well, though. <laughs> well, Arsenal had won 14 and lost one out of their previous 18 games as the Premier League entered its final weeks. United, though, had won 14 and lost none. And with the Backstreet Boys... Now, pleasingly, number one with I Want It That Way into the final set of matches we went. The two teams absolutely level, United ahead of Arsenal on goals scored alone. That midweek, though, Arsenal go to Ellen Road and suffer a momentous defeat. Huel, Hasselbank trying to stay onside in the centre. Huel looking for the cross. Arsenal had a few problems with Leeds during these title races with Manchester United. Uh, a few years later, pretty much similar time of the season, I think Viduka and Hughes scored at Highbury to, to really knock them out of the title race. But yeah, this was I mean, it's quite an eventful game up. Both sides had chances, really. Arsenal probably should have won it. But uh, a late goal from Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, um, who I think actually is one of the most underrated Premier League players, Hasselbank. I think absolutely brilliant striker. Um you know, good with both feet, good in the air. I think his link play was good. He scored three kicks. Just really good player. Won the golden boot uh, jointly on a couple of occasions as well, including this season. Um, but yeah, it was a funny kind of campaign because 
Obviously, Leeds were, were not really wanting Manchester United to win the league, um, but they helped them out with this win. And then on the final day, Arsenal end up hoping that uh, Tottenham can do them a favour against Manchester United. Right. Arsenal one point behind United going into that final day. Arsenal taking on Aston Villa, but needing United not to win. And of course, United are up against their former manager, George Graham, and his new club, Spurs. Could Spurs do Arsenal a favour? Well, they took the lead. Oh, Ferdinand's got a foot to it. He scored. Les Ferdinand. An amazing moment at Old Trafford. And then what happened, Daniel? And then Manchester United went on to win, as they had done in pretty much every game between January and the end of the season. I, I, I remember them obviously being um, consistent in all three competitions, but I didn't hadn't quite realised that 19th of December was their last defeat in all competitions that season, which is remarkable, really. And the kind of I think this is the the sixth month period where that resilience and that guts of Ferguson's Manchester United is really kind of truly established that lingers on for most of the next decade. Um, the kind of you know we know the the Arsenal semi final in the FA Cup, we know the the Champions League late salvo against Bayern Munich, but even in the league as well, just that relentlessness late on in games to to find points or wins where they knew a defeat would probably have let Arsenal in was that that's what psychologically did for Arsenal I think and as soon as they struggled again that game against Leeds it paid for them and you watch Manchester United that season and it was the first time I remember watching them thinking even if they're losing with 10 minutes to go I still don't think they'll draw the game I still think they'll win the game um, clearly they had the strikers with with all three of Cole York and Solskjaer contributing but as you mentioned earlier Beckham was was phenomenal Keane was brilliant and yet just a pure, pure relentlessness, which is exactly what Ferguson wanted to create a team in his own image. Yeah, we mentioned um, David Beckham and having one of his better campaigns. Obviously, this is coming off the back of the World Cup when he got sent off for England against Argentina and there were all sorts of horrendous tabloid headlines about him and effigies being burnt and whatever, but it never got through to, to Manchester, or that the red half of Manchester at least. And I think he probably benefited from Alex Ferguson's attitude, which was always that club is more important than country and, and the United fans with their kind of Republic of Mancunia banners and stuff were, were more than willing to, to show Beckham that um, they didn't care what had happened with England. And, and that obviously inspired him to go on and have one of his best ever campaigns and people forget what a good player he was his crossing in particular in this season kind of second to none and and those chances more often than not converted by the strikers that we've talked about and and sharing them too and United end up scoring 21 more goals this season than Arsenal even though Arsenal have a far better defensive records and United win 10 of their 38 league games by the odd goal so it just goes to show how, how significant those strikers were not least when you think that on this Last day against Spurs, Andy Cole gets the winning goal, having mm-hmm. come off the substitute bench in this game. A, what a week later, Teddy Sheringham comes off the bench in the FA Cup final and scores, and then we know what happens in uh, in the new camp against Bayern Munich. It's a brilliant chip that for the what was the the goal that actually won them the title? Because a draw wouldn't have been enough with uh, Arsenal beating Aston Villa, but Andrew Cole with uh, a wonderful strike. Oh, it's uh, Andy Cole. Can he get it over? The one thing I'd slightly forgotten about that strike force is just how good Dwight York was in that season. 
you know, you don't get a lot of time to settle at Manchester United and play your way in. But I didn't realise, he, as well as being one of the top scorers in the league, he was also got 11 assists, which is, I don't really think of Dwight York as that kind of striker. I think of him as a as a goal scorer and as a kind of slightly inventive player, but not a player who's going to get the most assists for Manchester United in a season. Um, that must be one of the best individual Premier League campaigns, I'd have thought. 29 goals and assists in a team where he wasn't necessarily starting every week. Yeah, it's interesting. There's some quite good quotes from Ferguson a while back where he's talking about the 4-4-2 system and he's saying, yeah, to be honest, at Manchester United, we've never really played a 4-4-2, which I thought was odd. But then he says, well, we've always had one withdrawn forward. You look at Cantona and Sheringham and Rooney and Dwight York. And yes, I'm saying as Daniel, I, I always thought of him as, as really a, a number nine, but he was clearly contributing a little bit more than that. I think it was also very important um, in another way, which was that whenever you read accounts of Andy Cole at the time, he's quite a difficult character, Cole. He, he's quite aloof and he was always quite separated from other players in the dressing room. And it's clear that Dwight York, he just got along with really well. I think they became best mates. And I remember reading a story that they got some type of really garish car. I think it's like a pink Ferrari or something. They they got matching ones with like almost identical number plates and that. And I think... On the pitch, he was doing a job of linking the rest of the side and Cole. And I think he kind of did that with the dressing room as well. And, you know, Cole and him, I think, linked up at Blackburn, maybe even Sunderland again together. Um, And I know, you know, Cole says he was just a lot more comfortable both on the pitch and off it after York had come. If you'd like to know more about uh, Man United's treble winning season, check out the Totally Football Show, if you haven't already, from the 30th of April when we do their Champions League campaign. We're not done with this little retro feature yet, though, because there's also relegation. The end of the campaign saw Charlton return to Division 1 with Alan Kerbishley. They would return, as would Blackburn, who went down just four seasons after winning the Premiership. And they weren't the only former top-flight champions making the trip down, because Nottingham Forest also got relegated, and it's a sad day here on the Toadie Show because this is the last time we can speak about Forrest in one of these Premier League review shows. Gone not to return. Michael will be delighted, I'm sure. (laughs) The uh, pro-Forrest bias on this podcast. (laughs) It was was always looking like a tough campaign from the word go with Harry Bassett in charge and with top striker uh, Pierre van Hooydonk going, well, on strike. Yeah, yeah, so Van Hooydonk had played for Holland at the World Cup in, in the summer and uh, initially was said to be disappointed that Forrest had lost out to Sheffield Wednesday in the race to sign Vim Yonk. Uh, Van Hooydonk had got 34 goals for Forrest in the in the championship this season before. Um, but also, I mean, just as key, people don't really talk about this, was it was the players that Forrest sold as much as they didn't buy. You know, Colin Cooper, who was the, the club captain, goes to Middlesbrough and, and Van Hooydonk's partner, Kevin Campbell from the season before, goes to Turkey initially and then Everton bring him back on loan in January. He gets nine goals in eight games for them and basically keeps them up. So whilst Van Hooydonk's actions were ridiculous and he is a, still a fairly reviled figure in, in Nottinghamshire, there was some credence to his argument. Stuart Finch says, I seem to remember a Forest game when Pierre van Hooydonk scored and his teammates refused to celebrate with him. Into that near post, and it's a goal! And van Hooydonk has scored it! Forest one down, minutes ago, are now in the lead, and van Hooydonk has a very private celebration. I mean, I know Carlos Tevez pulled this a little bit later on, but this was fairly unprecedented stuff as well, wasn't it? A, a, a player just saying, yeah, I'm not turning up. 
it was, and it was also reflective of of just how good Van Hooydonk was in that in that Forest team. You know, we had Stan Collymore before him, who who tore up the first division before the Premier League. But I mean, Van Hooydonk in that previous season, his free kicks alone were were worth the entrance fee. He he was a remarkable player who had a fairly remarkable personality to match and an ego. And I don't think Forrest probably would have stayed up if he'd have played all season. They'd have obviously got a lot closer. But yeah, he was not necessarily liked in the dressing room anyway, shall we say. And that certainly happened after he'd gone on strike. I remember a post-match interview with him, which I think is on the Premier League years, uh, where he's named man of the match after coming back. And the poor guy asking the questions sort of says... You worked very hard yourself, didn't you? The goal and uh, the header off the line. Do you feel you're building bridges now with the rest of the players? Building bridges? I think you're... I don't really like your questions. They are a bit negative. And he says, oh, are you happy how you've played? And he just holds up his man of the match award and says, well, what do you think? And it was the sense that he didn't even have the wherewithal to try and build any bridges at Forest, even after he'd come back, that annoyed most people, I think. Yeah, there was also uh, a good training ground squabble between Ron Atkinson and Pierre Van Hoydonk, where Atkinson had recently appeared in a Carling advert and they had a bit of an argument on the training pitch and Van Hoydonk shouted at him, the only reason that they got you on that Carling advert was because you're the biggest pub manager in this country, which I quite like. Brilliant. <laughs> Big Ron, who'd taken over at the city ground from Harry Bassett, but famously debuted by sitting in the wrong dugout. Yeah, this was um, in the game against Arsenal. His, his excuse for it was that when he was an opposition manager, the home dugout used to be in that position and, and the away dugout in a different position further down the line. But but it's not my worst memory of this day. As I say, oh, well, I had a season ticket during this season and I, along with the other Forest supporters, were given paper hats with Come On Big Ron written on them. <laughs> um I think there's still one kicking about at my mum's house somewhere. And when the team came out, they played uh, the Gary Glitter song, Do You Want to Be in My Gang? And yeah, not good. Mm. Well, he's not been seen in the Premier League since, and neither, of course, have Forrest. Anything else before we leave season 98-99, Michael? Well, I think it's worth pointing out that unless I've missed someone, this was surely the last example of joint managers in the Premier League and I thought Liverpool handled this really badly Roy Evans had done a decent job there in the 90s he'd won the League Cup he'd taken them you know relatively close to the title on a couple of occasions there was a sense that Liverpool needed to be professionalised I think they looked at what Arsene Wenger did at Arsenal and thought they want someone in that mould so so saw Gerard Houllier who had a good reputation albeit having you know had a disappointing time when he was in charge of the France job, but he came over. But they should have just got rid of Evans and, and brought in Julio. They tried to do this joint manager thing where it seemed as if Julio was brought in, well, certainly without Evans's demand. Evans certainly didn't want him there. But they, they kind of seemed to imply that Julio was the main man while they were still joint managers. And I just thought it was quite a poor way to treat Roy Evans, who'd been mm. a, a loyal club servant for a number of mm. years. And I don't think it's any surprise that, one, it didn't last long, and two, we haven't seen any examples of joint managers since. Yeah, Roy Evans, a lovely chap. And also, and I'd forgotten this, quite a ringer for kind of uh, Dr. Strangelove era Peter Sellers. Or not, possibly not. Anyway. <laughs> i have to take your word for that. <laughs> season 98-99 then for you. Next week we'll be doing 99-2000. Who knows what delights that will offer. But next up for us on this Totally Football show, it's time to round off semi-final two, Cox v Lang. Welcome back, Jack and Michael. Hi. Hi there. Hi, Jack. The score then after 
the specialist subject round was 12 to 4 for Michael, which presents Jack with a bit of a problem because there's only five more uh, left to play for. But Jack, anyway, let's go out in a blaze of glory. Are you ready for some general knowledge questions? Let's do it. Okay, let's see if you can beat your last general knowledge score in the first leg, which was none out of five. Here we go. Question one. Which club was Bobby Charlton manager of between 1973 and 1975? I mean... It was was an answer you gave earlier. Quite fiendish. Preston, that's very kind of you. Correct. Question two. Two clubs have lost the Champions League or European Cup final in their own home stadium. Bayern were one in 2012. Who was the other? His legs are wobbling. Mm. Uh, He's got bendy legs. They're wobbling. You're just making me think of Bruce Grobelar, so Liverpool. Liverpool playing who? Don't know. It was Bruce Grobelar in the penalty shootout with Roma at the Stadio Olimpico in 1984. The bendy legs proved especially effective against the Giallorossi. Question three then. Which Premier League Golden Boot winner made his first senior appearance at Cambridge and his last one at Norwich? Uh, Let's go for Chris Sutton. It was percussions Dion Dublin. Mm, of course. Mm. Question four. What was the venue for Liverpool's UEFA Cup final win over Alaves in 2001? Oh, this was on one of the shows recently. And yet, mm. here we are. Uh, <laughs> was it... Was it in Bilbao? No, Westfalen Stadion in Dortmund. Question five. Which team has appeared in three World Cup finals but never won one? A nation that has gone to three World Cup finals but has never been world champion. Kind of famous for it. Nope. Netherlands. 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 I think you got that just in time. Anyway, well well done. Uh, Okay, Michael, your general knowledge questions. Yep. The pressure now off, of course. You can really enjoy these. Yep, I'll showboat. Good. Question one. George Best played for one current Premier League club other than Manchester United. Which club is that? Uh, Bournemouth. Correct. Question two. Two clubs have won the Champions League or European Cup in their home stadium. Can you name one of them? Won the Champions League in their home stadium? Uh, Champions League or European Cup? Can't think of this one. Two clubs that have been crowned European champions at home. I'll just guess uh, on the balance of probability, Real Madrid. That is absolutely correct. Real Madrid in 1957, the other being Inter in 1965. Question three. Which Premier League Golden Boot winner started his career at Den Bosch and ended it at Malaga? Uh, Van Nistelrooy. Correct. Question four. What was the venue for Fulham's Europa League final defeat to Atletico Madrid in 2010? I think it was the place they'd just gone for the semi-final, which was away at Hamburg. 
Correct. Home of the dinosaurs. Question five. <laughs> and this for a perfect 10 out of 10 today. Which team has appeared in three Champions League finals but never won one? Uh, I think it's Atletico. Atletico Madrid is correct. And that is a perfect score, giving us a final total across the two legs of 17 points for Michael, six for Jack Lang. Michael, through, you go to the final. Jack, how do you think Michael's going to get on? I think it'll be good. Daniel knows his stuff as well. Uh, but, yeah, I think I think Michael's got a very good chance. I'll, I'll, I'll be smarting for a while. This is my 7-1, I think. <laughs> right. Well, you can always use it to come back stronger next time the Inter totally appears. For now, congratulations on making it this far, Jack Lang. And we'll catch up with you soon. Michael will be speaking to you very shortly. Well, again, a few hours later on, Michael, congratulations. Our first 10 out of 10. Yeah, pleased with that. Having struggled uh, really against Matt and Carl in previous rounds, I'm hopefully picking up form at the right time. Just hope I haven't peaked too soon. Right. Are you pleased with that? Michael holds up his man of the match bottle of champagne. Daniel, what do you think? Uh, Well, it's as intimidating as I thought it would be, and fair play. That is a remarkable knowledge on the general knowledge questions, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, The thing is, as well, Michael, as we mentioned previously, you came into the semi-finals in slightly underwhelming form. You were the lowest scoring of the four semi-finalists, but you just seem to be picking up speed as you go. Have you consciously been kind of rope-a-doping everybody or did you just not take it seriously? Or were there a little bit of nerves, perhaps, in those opening rounds? Uh, to be honest, I thought I just got some like really hard questions in the opening rounds. In fact, like I, th- I was kind of convinced Nick was playing a joke on me with my questions in the first <laughs> round. They were so hard. But, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with my uh, form, obviously, and looking forward to the final. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm looking forward to seeing what format the final is because it feels like there'll be some trick Eight weeks or... Yeah. There's a second group stage first, and then we'll... <laughs> no, I'm, we, we'll have the final a week on Thursday, I think, to give you okay. a chance to prepare. And I think there will be some extra rounds in there, and we'll be back with the, the details very, very soon. Uh, before that, of course, uh, we've got a show coming up this Thursday, which uh, will see us back with James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, and Duncan Alexander... We'll be looking back on Tuesday Tea Time's Der Klassiker and ahead to what the weekend holds in Germany. And, of course, we'll be having another chapter from our Champions League story. Perhaps, listener, the most enthralling chapter of all because we've got 2002-3, 120 goalless minutes at Old Trafford. Woof. Alrighty, you will be tuning in for that, I am sure. For now, though, it's many thanks to Michael and Daniel and to you, Matt Davis-Adams. Thank you. And you, listener, we'll be back with you on Thursday. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.